Thanks, guys. Well, good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's good to see you. It's good to be back. My family and I had uh, some vacation time, and I got to, you got to hear from Hoyt and, uh, and Alistair, who uh, we actually tuned in and watched and sang along as well, and it was a great word from both. Uh, we are in Psalm chapter 22. You can turn there. Uh, I'm going to give you a couple announcements just uh, as you get turning to that place. Uh, first off, next Sunday, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. So uh, please be ready for that, be excited for that, be preparing in your heart for that. Uh, but for, for those of you who are tuning in from home or, or worshiping from home, uh, you'll need to gather the elements and uh, also get your family prepared uh, to celebrate the Lord's Supper together then as well. Uh, it should be a great time together. Uh, we are still so grateful for uh, so many people who are serving and uh, actively giving their time uh, to ministries in our church. Uh, even though things have slowed down and we, we aren't doing uh, all that we normally would do, uh, we are still trying to accomplish discipleship the best we know how. Um, some awesome things are happening with uh, our, our youth ministry, and uh, they're actually, we can't do a, a formal camp, right, like a, a wild adventure camp this year, but they are doing a, a day camp type thing, and they've been meeting on Sunday uh, afternoons, evenings for youth groups, so they're going to be turning that into a theme type thing starting next Sunday, and um, so if you have students who are interested in that, they can participate. They'll also have activities they can, they can participate in, great social distanced activities, during the middle of the week uh, for three weeks uh, in, in August. So uh, you can see Chase for more about that. Uh, you can check out what's going on at Youth, youth Group tonight uh, or, or probably sign up through, uh, through those avenues as well. Uh, we still encourage and th are thankful for uh, those who are continuing to faithfully give and cheerfully give. Uh, just You probably all know who are here, but the, uh, the boxes are on the back um, sound booth there. That's where we give now. We don't pass the plate uh, at this time. And then for you online, you can give, uh, of course, via text or just the same way you have in giving. Send a, send a check in or, uh, or go to your online profile at Breeze or to our website and give through that avenue. So we're just grateful that, uh, that God is continuing to move and work through the ministry of all of us at this, uh, this body. So we're grateful for that. Um, I think that's it. You can also tune in on Wednesday nights. Uh, Wednesday night we have worship as well uh, and a Bible study going on. So that starts at 630 on Wednesday nights right here. It's, uh, it's live in person just like it is on Sunday mornings. Um, or you can tune in online and grab that as well. Uh, but we're grateful to gather. We're grateful to still be able to sing and to be able to go to God's Word and, and to be edified from, from it. I would encourage those who are uh, watching or viewing online, uh, it, it's, this is great to be together. It's great to be back together. I know that summertime uh, in the middle of COVID is one of those things like, you know what, this might be an opportunity for our families to, to go out and do something and be a part of it. But uh, just know your church family is still gathering, and uh, we would love to see you if, uh, if you are able or willing uh, to come on down. We're, we're gathering and we're worshiping here together. So with that, let's get into the Word. Huh? So we're in Psalm chapter 22, if you've turned there with me, and we've seen uh, the, first, the first couple weeks have been uh, Alistair and, and Hoyt uh, preaching through this text, and uh, um, Alistair talked about just, the, just his words, God's words, the Lord, the Savior's words, crying out to God, where are you, I, have, why have you forsaken me? Uh, and then we started this view from the cross, uh, not, not just a view of the cross, but a view from the cross is what, uh, what Hoyt started last week. And, and I'm going to pick up with that this week. Uh, he kind of stole some of my thunder, right? He kind of bled into some of these verses we'll read today, but it was appropriate to show us this view from the cross. And we're going to look into more depth of that uh, today as well as we look at this view from the Lord as he suffers and dies on our behalf now, one of the things I'd say about this is uh, it, it's really difficult sometimes for us to go to a passage like this and a really in-depth look at the suffering of Jesus. Most of us don't like that, right? Most of us don't like to, to see Jesus suffering and to see the gore and, the, and what's associated with the crucifixion. And, and it's pretty powerful. It's pretty impactful. Uh, how many of you here have, have seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie The Passion of the Christ? Right? It, it came out probably almost two decades ago but really intense movie. I mean, they got the crucifixion down right to what Scripture says. And, and in watching that, it, it really it upsets you, doesn't it? You watch and like, I don't want to see this. It's sad to watch. And, and at the same time, it's a little convicting that he's actually dying in the place that I should have died. So it's, it's difficult for us to do that. But I do think it's important. As we look through the Scripture, it's important for us to see what the Savior did and how he suffered on my behalf, on our, on our behalf. So today we're going to look more in depth about that. And uh, I'm not going to try to make this a gory thing. You can look up the crucifixion later on or go watch The Passion of the Christ with your family. Uh, maybe not if you have little ones, but maybe take that time and that moment to, 
to rethink and to refocus in on what Jesus did and what he accomplished there. So again, we're moving through this text from what Alistair preached on, what, what Jesus uttered from his lips, and then to what, uh, and, and what, he, what he saw, and then to, to what Jesus saw with his own eyes, what was going on around him. And we saw the first part of that last week. And um, there's something I want us to make sure we're aware of. There's, there's three yet yous in this text. And, and Hoyt really emphasized that last week, that, that there was this trust and this faith when, when Jesus was there on the cross suffering, he trusted, yet you, God, you are there. And, and we see these yet yous played out. Uh, and, but as it, as it plays through the text, it, it starts a little bit objective. It's, it's kind of like Jesus is far off. It's like, well, it's, it's a yet you that's kind of far away. It's in verses three and five in the text. If you look at that with me in, verse, or in chapter 22, he says, but you, yet you are holy and thrown in the praises of your people. And then it goes into our fathers trusted in you. They trusted in you and, they, and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. And Alistair did a great job of talking about that deep trust that was there. And even Jesus, as he utters that, it's, it's yet you are holy. He's starting to build this case and build this faith in his own life about who the Father is, about his character and about his nature. But it was still a little bit more objective statement. You're holy. But then we get into verses like 9 through 11. And this is where, where Hoyt talked about last week. If you look at 9 through 11 with me. It was you, or yet you who brought me out of the mother's womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth, and you have been my God from my mother's womb. So there's this building, right? It's not so much objective anymore. It's starting to get more personal. It's like, wait, you, you actually made this happen. You, you, I was born from this woman that you put me in her womb and, 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 and I've been handed over to you and I trust in you. And then in verse 11, don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. So he's moving a little more personally, isn't he? He's moving more personally. And today our text we see uh, in, in the last part of this, but you in verse 19. Well, I'm just going to read it quickly and we'll come back and cover it. But you, Lord, don't be far away. Again, the same idea is like, wait, I, this is personal. You are my God. Don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. And then this is where it gets real personal. This is where the faith the switch, uh, is switched over. He says in the last part of verse 21, You answered me. You answered me. There is this faith that is built through this passage of the suffering Savior. I want us to see that. And, and, and the, the application for you and I is that as we suffer, as we experience suffering or pains in this life, we should be drawn into deeper community with our Father in heaven. That our relationship with God should get stronger and deeper and more personal and that our prayers should deepen. Our faith should deepen. We should grow I think if we look back at our lives, what we'd find is that we have grown the most in our faith in times of suffering, in times of despair, in times of sorrow, in times of grief, in times of loss. Those times drive us to our knees. And when we're driven to our knees, God has to be near. We have to cry out to him. We have to call out to him. We have to entrust ourselves to him, and that's exactly what the Lord Jesus did as well. So that's kind of setting the stage a little bit, and I want us to, to look at uh, this in depth. We're going to look at verses 12 through 21. We'll pray first, and then we'll read our text. Okay, let's pray. Father, we, we are here today to entrust ourselves to you, to your spirit, and to your word. We thank you for it. We thank you that you have given us this living and active word of God that, that cuts deep. And God, we ask that as we look at it, that you would convict us of sin, that you would challenge us and change us and shape us and mold us and conform us more into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. God, we want to repent of selfishness, of pride, of any sin that is prevalent within us. We want to turn to you in faith. We want to trust you. We want to look more like you. We want our faith to grow so that the world would know Jesus as well. We trust you with this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go and read the text through, and then we'll, we'll break it apart. Now, don't be fooled. The notes there you have uh, show two points, but there are several sub-points under those points. So get ready to write and take notes if you're uh, kind of OCD about that. Let's look at verses 12 through 21. <clears throat> 
Again, the view from the cross. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me in the dust of, the, of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evil doers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look at me and stare. They divided my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. So we're going to look at this today and and break it apart into really two sections. Uh, The sermon title is The View from the Cross, and it's part two, uh, playing off of uh, last week's message from Hoyt. Uh, In The View from the Cross, there are two two different areas we're going to look today. One is Christ's suffering and anguish. That's point number one. We're going to look at the section about Christ's suffering and anguish. And then we're going to finally look at Christ's prayer. That'll be the last part we wrap up there in verses 19 and on. But we're going to look at this view from the cross of Christ's suffering and anguish. And again, it's not something that we typically want to study in depth, is it? We, we, we know, okay, Jesus came, he lived, he died for me, he died for the sins of the world. That's an amazing thing. Thank you, Jesus. But when we look at this treachery that was around him and, and the sin, see, here's, here's the point. Christ's suffering and anguish was because of sin. It was because of our sin. It wasn't just like, well, okay, I'll... I'll be tribute today. I'll be the sacrifice that's offered to atone. No, sin caused the need for that, and sin caused his death. Although no one took his life from him, he laid it down willingly. So we're going to look at this uh, in a little more detail. So the first subpoint under Christ's suffering and anguish is this. Uh, point A is that he was surrounded by murderous intent. He was surrounded by murderous intent. This is the kind of setting up the stage, the the hearts of mankind, right? Sin is prevalent all around. So if you look with me at verses 12 and 13, here's the picture from the cross. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. Here's what's going on. First of all, the, the mention of bulls, strong ones. It wasn't the weak bulls, it was strong ones. The, the area of Bashan was more of a fertile ground where that grass grew more lush and thick and beautiful. And, and those bulls, those animals could eat more and grow bigger and stronger. You got a bull from Bashan, you got a strong bull. He's saying these bulls, are, they're not just any ordinary bull. They're the bulls from Bashan. They're, they're the ones that are the strongest ones that are encircling me. They opened their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. See, there was this mockery had, and you can see this. He, the, the intent of this passage is he is surrounded on every side. There is no escape. There's no escape from what? There's no escape from the mockery. There's no escape from the, the disdain, the disgust, the lies. There's no escape from the murderous intent of those that would see him hang and suffer on that cross and die. They wanted him silenced. They wanted him dead. Why? Why? What what was the depth here? Well, it goes back to the the core of humanity. In Jeremiah 17, 9, we see this, that the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Listen, for you and I as, as human beings, we have to understand that our hearts are desperately evil desperately wicked. As I studied this text, as I went through commentaries on this, one commentator said this, and I totally agree with it. You talk about the murderous intent that surrounded Christ and what the evil that went against him. We would call it that. This is evil. How could someone do that? You did that. I did that. The truth is this. The commentator said this. Without Christ, humanity, the whole of humanity are all animals. Without Christ, the whole of humanity are all animals. We have to have a Savior. We're desperately in need of a Savior. So what did these animals do and why were they like this? Well, I want us to turn to John chapter 8. If you turn to John chapter 8 with me. Um, there's, there's a great passage here. and, I, and Actually, in your, in your discussion notes, I've, I've indicated that you should read most of this chapter. 
uh, together to get a little bigger picture of what's going on here. But John chapter 8. And we're going to look at uh, verses 34 through 47, but I think in the notes I said uh, start at verse 12 and go through the end of the chapter. Uh, we're going to read verses 34 through 47. And, and Jesus is, is having this discussion with some folks and with some, some leaders there, and, and, and he's indicating he's the Son of God, that his, his Father is the one that's in heaven, that, that he is Jesus, he's the Messiah. They don't like that very much, and, and they, they think they're sons of the Father in heaven, they're sons of Abraham and daughters of Abraham, but Jesus points out how they're not. And I want us to see this in depth because this, this is what really distinct, is, distinguishes those who believe and trust in faith in God and are sons and daughters of the Most High and those who do not believe and are not sons and daughters of the Most High but sons and daughters of someone else. Looking at verse 34 and going on. Jesus, it says, Jesus responded, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but, but a son does remain forever. So talking about the idea of sonship versus not a son or daughter. Right? And, and sin, when sin is there, you're a slave to sin. Sin does not remain. You've got to push that out. But a son or daughter does remain. And Jesus is saying, that our, do you have sin or do you not? But if the son sets you free, talking about himself, if the son sets you free, you really will be free. I know you are descendants of Abraham, but you are trying to kill me because my word has no place among you. Interesting, right? Our word has no place among you. I speak with what I have seen in the presence of the Father. So then you do what you have heard from your Father. Ooh, right? He's setting the stage here. Jesus is like, I'm, I'm talking on authority on behalf of the Father, and so are you. You're talking on behalf of your Father. And they say, well, our father is Abraham, they replied, verse 39. If you were Abraham's children, Jesus told them, uh, you would do what Abraham did. But now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing what your father does. Oh, man. They, they are getting agitated about this. They're agitated, first of all, that Jesus is even claiming to be the son of God, that he can forgive sin, that he can set people free from the bondage and slavery of sin. This is what Jesus is saying. They go on, we weren't born of sexual immorality, they said. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, and here's the distinction where it starts. If God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. For I did not come on my own, but he sent me. Verse 43, why don't you understand what I say? Because you cannot listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you, don't want, uh, and you want to carry out your father's desires. There's a distinction here, right? Those who would believe and receive what the Lord Jesus says and who he is, or those who believe a lie. Now, it goes on to describe this, uh, the father of lies. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks it from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. That's who these people belong to. Yet, because I tell the truth, here's the distinction again, right? Jesus comes telling the truth, and what? You do not believe me. Who among you can convict me of sin? I, if I am telling the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who is from God listens to my words. Another distinction. This is why you don't listen. So those who don't listen are what? Because you are not from God. You are not from God. So this, this sets the stage, and I, and I hope you go and read more of this in the, in the full text of, of John 8. Uh, there are those folks who crucified Jesus, who pushed to have him killed and executed because he said he was the son of God, because he told them that they belong to the father, the devil, the father of lies, the murderous one, because of their actions. They didn't look like they belonged to Abraham. They certainly didn't look like they belonged to the Father in heaven because they did not receive the one that he sent, Jesus Christ. Again, without Jesus, not, not believing and receiving the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, we are all still left to be animals. Listen, sin, sin is why Jesus suffered. Sin is why Jesus was surrounded by every murderous intent. Going on in verse 14, we see point B, 
that he's disjointed and emptied. He's disjointed and emptied is the, is the point there. Verse 14 says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. I want you to think about the, the pain and suffering that Jesus is enduring at that time. He's poured out like water. First of all, there's a few things going on. There's the heat of the day, the sweat. He's, been, he's dehydrated, right? He's losing his moisture, and we'll see that in a few minutes. He's poured out like water. All of my bones are disjointed. He's been crucified. He's been nailed to a cross, up and down, stress on his body over and over, pulling sockets out, joints out, tendons all ripping and tearing because of the weight of his body on that cross. Crucifixion was not meant to be comfortable. It was meant to be torturous. His bones are disjointed. He says, my heart melts like wax within me. Uh, some people love to, to talk about this, especially with the verse we're going to see in a minute, that Jesus died of a broken heart. His heart melted within him. Certainly he went there. His heart of love made him go to the cross and helped him go to the cross and, and submit to the Father. And certainly his heart broke in, in, in grief over the sin of the world. But he went there because he loved us. I want to see more of this emptying, though. How did he empty himself? He was being emptied, right? This is God on the cross. How was he empty? Well, Philippians tells us that in chapter 2 and starting in verse 7. It says, instead, Jesus, he, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking the likeness of humanity. God, God Almighty, came to earth and took on flesh. That was humility. That was weakness that he took on. He took on flesh like you and I have. He said when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. See, Christ came. God in the flesh came put on flesh, human flesh, in weakness, emptying himself, becoming human, and was crucified on a cross. This is the greatest humility that we've seen. The God of the universe condescends to the point of humanity, becomes human, and allows himself to be crucified in our place on a cross. Yeah, he was emptied for sure. He was poured out like water. But I want to read another passage out of John 19. This is a, a depiction of what was going on at the crucifixion and towards the end of it. And maybe you as a family would go read John 19 as well, this account of the crucifixion. Starting in verse 33 of John 19. When they came to Jesus, and this is what was going on, Passover was coming, they had to prepare. They wanted, they wanted the, the thieves off the cross. They wanted Jesus off the cross, buried to be done with. They didn't want, want to extend it anymore. What happened is, here's what would happen. They would go uh, to, to make them suffer even more and to make them die more quickly. Right? They would break their legs because they were using their legs. They were crucified. Now, just think about this. They're, they're on the cross, right? and there's, there's, sometimes there's a post there. If not, their feet are really just nailed to the cross on, on a nail, and that's the only leverage they have. But, but they would sink down like this. And when they pulled their, their arms out of socket, they would start to suffocate. They couldn't breathe like this. So what would they do? They push themselves back up and take a breath. And in weakness, their legs would get weak and struggle, and they'd go back down to suffocate again. And they'd go back up for hours and hours on end. So it's time for them to die. It's, it's time to, for them to be put in the grave. It's time for us to be done and get, go get ready for Passover and clean our hands of this. So what do they do? They break their legs, right? So that it'd be a little bit harder or impossible to do this and breathe. They'd break their legs. As soon as they'd break their legs, it was almost impossible for them to push up and breathe, and they would soon suffocate and die. And that's the scene we have. They broke the legs of the thieves on the either side, and when Jesus, they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. Interesting, right? Jesus pouring himself out, emptying himself, melting, his heart melting like wax within him. The soldier pierces his side into his pericardial sac around his heart and pierces his heart, and blood and water stream out. If he wasn't dead, he's dead now, by the way. Some people think there's a, a theory, oh, Jesus just swooned. He, didn't all, he, wasn't, he was just mostly dead. No, Jesus was all the way dead. Christ humbled himself and yielded his life.
four hours. The next thing we see here in, verses, in verse 15, that he's weak and he's parched. He's, the description is weak and parched. It says, my strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. He is totally dehydrated. Every bit of strength is just draining and drained from his body. If you think about going backwards in time, he was handed over to Pilate, right? And, and then he was handed over to be flogged, right? Beaten and spit on. And they forced a crown of thorns on his head in mockery of him. And then, then they, they went through this rigmarole of, is he guilty? Is he not guilty? No, I find no charge. Well, we want to crucify him anyway. He said he's the son of God. Kill him. Then there he's made to carry his own cross. And he can't even do that because he's so weak at that point. He was beaten uh, with a cat of nine tails right, within a whip of his life. He's already empty before the cross gets even put on his shoulder, on his back to carry to the skull. This is the weakness. He, and now he's on the cross dying. And it, it, the description is he's dried up like baked clay. He's just done. He's empty. His tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. In fact, other, uh, there's accounts there where they give him a little vinegar on a, on a, on a sponge, right? Here, here, take that. Just a little bit of comfort. He was weak and parched. This next part, the last part of uh, verse 15, is really an interesting turning point, and it's kind of a tough thing for people to to realize. But look at this. This point C is this, or point D is this. uh, It pleased the Father to crush the Son. It pleased the Father to crush. And in the middle of his crucifixion, in the middle, middle of his agony we see this this statement in verse 15 uh, part c the last part the last line of this verse he, he's he's describing he says you god you put me into the dust of death he didn't say that about the bulls around him and the the lions roaring and the people that were ravenous against him he said this against the father to the father father you you have put me into the dust of death well how do we make sense of that that seems pretty harsh. I want us to go back to Isaiah chapter 53. And, and I, in your notes, in your discussion, I actually have it so that you read the entire chapter with your discussion time. But this one verse, verse 10, says this. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Why? Because through Christ's death and God's wrath being placed on Jesus, it would not have to be placed on you and on me. That God was accomplishing his goal of redemption of his, his creation by placing the wrath of God, the wrath that was, was due on me and the wrath that was due on you. He placed it on Jesus. So it pleased God to crush Jesus so that you and I wouldn't have to be crushed. Because if you and I were crushed, we'd be lost forever. But Jesus, because he was God in the flesh, when he was crushed, he wasn't left crushed. He rose victoriously from the grave and sits at the right hand of the throne of God. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. It's so important for us to understand that. And Jesus had that perspective. He looks around. He's not saying, well, they're killing me. They're killing me. They're doing this. He says they're around me and they're ravenous and they're sin and they're murderous. But ultimately he understands, God, you, Father, you put me into the dust of death. He goes on. What is this description looking like? Point E is he is in excruciating pain. Jesus is in excruciating pain. Let's look at verses 16 and the first part of 17 together back in Psalm 22. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. The word excruciating, by the way, I, I think I've told you this before. I'm going to tell you it again. The word excruciating is a word that actually comes from, the, 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 where, where it's from is from the cross. That's what it means. It means from the cross. So I, I try not to use that word in my daily life. When I, even if I hit my thumb with a hammer, right, I try not to say, man, this is excruciating. Or, or if something's throbbing, some trauma in my arm or, or leg or limb is throbbing, I try not to use the word excruciating. Because it literally means from the cross. And to me, the only thing that was excruciating was the crucifixion that was suffered by Jesus Christ. Or crucifixion similarly by the saints or others. 
that form of torment and torture could be called excruciating. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. Think about this. There, he's pierced, he's been crucified or, or, or nailed to the cross. Right? And this is a description, by the way, a prophetic description of crucifixion that didn't even take place. They didn't know what it was. But it, it took place hundreds, if not a thousand years later. Isaiah mentions the same thing. It's the things that didn't exist at the time. It's prophecy. So he's, he's pierced. His hands and his feet are pierced on the cross again. And you think about it, it says, I, I can count all my bones. Uh, first of all, if you count all your bones, it means you can probably feel pain in every single place on your body. He's like, I can, oh, I didn't know I had a bone there. I, that hurts right now. That hurts, and that hurts, and this hurts, and there's nothing that doesn't hurt. The other thing, the way to count, count all your bones, you think about how Jesus is stretched out on the cross. Now, I might not have this problem, but Jesus is probably a little emaciated, right? And his skin tightly pulled against his rib cage. You can see every stinking bone in his body. You can count all his bones. He, he's aware of his suffering. He's aware of the pain of what he's enduring. And people, as they watch, are aware of every single bone that he has because his whole body is under this great, great stress. It's excruciating. I want to talk about the prophecy a little bit. Uh, John 19, verses 36 and 37. We read 33 and 34 a little while ago. It said they came by and they pierced him, right, with a, with a, a spear, and blood and water came out. Later on in that passage, it says, For these things happened. These things happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And here's the quote, Not one of these bones will be broken. And another Scripture says, They will look at the one they have pierced. Now listen, there, there are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. 300 prophecies that, that one man throughout all of history and time had to fulfill. It wasn't by chance. It was by God's sovereign intervention that it was Jesus. I, wanna, I want us to think about the odds of this for a minute. I, and I mentioned this a long time ago. I'm a math guy. I, I, really, I think about things in, is this even possible? Right? Because people would say, well, gee, yeah, Jesus did some of these things, of these 300. And so they took eight. Some mathematicians took eight of the prophecies about Jesus regarding his birth and, and, and just, just kind of what eight prophecies that, that happened right away at his birth. Uh, where, how he was born, where he was born, uh, when he was born, those things that all occurred. And they, they, they developed a, uh, a mathematical probability. They said, what is the probability that any man throughout all of time and history when born, would fulfill all eight of those prophecies. Now, it's just eight of over 300. What are the odds? Well, here's the odds. You take the state of Texas, and you fill it up two feet deep with silver dollars. And you mark one of those silver dollars with, a, with an X or a red X on it. And you throw it in the pile and randomize the whole pile. For any man throughout all time and history to fulfill just those eight prophecies... The task would have been go to Texas, bend over one time, pick up one coin, and if that's it, you're the man. Those are the odds. Those are the odds for any man throughout all of history to just fulfill eight of those prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies spoken about the Messiah. The, the, the mathematical probability of that is just impossible. I think that it was, it was described one time, I'm going to probably flub this up, but basically the idea of you get a little spaceship and you get a little atomic tweezers and you get to go out anywhere in the known universe, but you only get to stop one time, open your hatch one time, and reach out one time with your atomic tweezers and take one atom from the universe. What are the odds of you getting the right atom? It's the same odds of Jesus, of any man fulfilling 300 prophecies that are talked about in the scriptures. It is an impossibility without the divine, sovereign will of God. See, when Jesus died, it wasn't happenstance. It was by the will of God. It was set before the foundations of the world that this is what would occur for the redemption of the wicked, evil human heart of you and I. That He would die. He would be the one. And it was set in accordance with God's Faithful, covenantial love, right? His hesed love. 
that love that's enduring, that he'll do anything in line with it to redeem those who would receive him in faith. It's an amazing thing. Through all that excruciating pain that Jesus was in, it was there to fulfill prophecy, to point us to not only God, but to the Savior that he delivered for us. Subpoint F. Here we go. In this suffering of Jesus, he is shamed. He's shamed. Let's look at verses 17b and 18 together. He says, people look and stare at me. This is when he said, you can count my bones. People look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. You know, all of the, uh, the crucifixes we see, the pictures of Jesus on the cross dying uh, in a place, it's, it's kind of, it's always a little more modest than it should be, right? He has this nice loincloth on. It's covering up any parts of his body. That was not the case when it came to the crucifixion. Jesus hung naked on the cross in full shame, in full view of his mother, of friends, of everyone that was there to watch. He was in full view, fully exposed. And I, I think about that. I, that. Again, that's one of those, those horrors. Why? I don't want to hear that. I don't want to think about that. Jesus, that's sad. But it's also convicting. I mentioned that at the beginning of the message. We think about the crucifixion and we don't want to see it. We don't want to hear about it because it's sad, but also because it's convicting. Well, why would the shame part be convicting? Why did he allow himself to hang in shame on the cross? Well, we find this from the author of Hebrews. And Hebrews writes this about you and about me. He says that no creature is hidden from him, that is Jesus, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So why did Jesus allow himself that shame? And why did he take on the shame? Because you and I deserved it. Because you and I would have stood naked and ashamed before him if he didn't hang on the cross, taking the nakedness, taking the shame upon himself. We deserved that shame. We're the ones who must give an account, but Jesus hung willingly on our behalf to take the suffering, to take the punishment, to take the penalty of our sin, the sin that we deserved. And, and Hebrews 12 says that he did this for the joy that laid before him. He, for the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went to the cross in all the shame, in all the pain, knowing it was going to end in death, he did it for you. And he did it for me. He did it for those that are the whosoevers would believe that they would have eternal life, that they would then no longer be ashamed because Christ took away the shame. 1 Peter 3, 18 says this, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That's an amazing statement we see in Peter. Why did Jesus suffer? Why did he endure the shame? What, what was the joy that was set before him? It was that he, the righteous, would die for the unrighteous and that he might bring you to God. That's an amazing thing that our Savior has done. So when we see the suffering of Christ in this passage and throughout Scripture, when we see a movie like The Passion of the Christ, when we see the suffering of the Savior, it ought to warm our heart that He did what we were supposed to have done to us, that He accomplished what we could never accomplish, that He died in a place that I was meant to die so that I might be brought closer to God. What an amazing Savior we have. And that leads us into the next part of this passage, the last three verses we see here. So we see the suffering of Christ, and then we see the prayer of Christ, or Christ's prayer. Let's look at verse 19 there's, uh, through 21. There's, there's three different things uh, we'll see here that Jesus is praying for, 19 through 21. But Lord, this is that yet Lord, right? He's getting personal. He's moving into that deeply relational place with the Lord. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, he calls him, my strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You answered me. 
So let's look at this. There's three things we see here. Uh, part A under number two is this. He prays for strength. Right? We see that his strength has melted away. He's parched. It's gone. He's weak. He can't do this on his own. Remember, before he was even arrested, he was in the garden praying for that strength. He was praying to God, God, I don't know if I can do this, but not my will, your will be done. And he knew he needed a strength that he couldn't muster on his own. So he prays, don't be far. God, don't be far. I felt like you're far. I said, why have you forsaken me? But I know you're not far. I know you're near. Don't be far. Give me the strength I need. Come quickly to help me. And, and it's interesting, these pleas to God, these pleas to the Father, it, it's a lament saying, I, I just want to be rescued from this. I want this to be over. But what's actually happening is Christ on the cross, the viewpoint, his thinking is changing and seeing it doesn't, I don't need to be rescued from death because there's an answer that's bigger than that. Even though he says, I want to be rescued. He goes on, he prays for strength, right? It's that very personal prayer for strength. Come, come quickly to help me. Uh, Part of me thinks, like, let's get this over with. Let's be done. I'm, I'm, I want this over, God. Then he, he prays for rescue. And the next part, verse 20, rescue my life from the sword, my only life, from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. Th- these, these first few uh, verses, these first two verses, uh, verses 19 and 20, and a little bit of 21, there are imperatives here. These are imperative tense uh, that Jesus is using when he speaks. It, and, and think about what an imperative is. It's like a command, right? Like, rescue me. Right now, rescue me. Answer me. Save me. These are what it, this is what he's saying. But there's a, a switch that's flipped. So he, he prays for strength. He prays for rescue. And then there's this flip that switches. And he understands what real rescue and real strength is. It comes from the victory that God has over all. The victory that God has through, through offering Christ all the way unto death, and then raising him from the dead. Christ knew what the plan of the Father was, although it was painful at the time. So he flips this switch from this imperative in the last line. It actually is one word in Hebrew, this last line in verse 21. And it's in the perfect tense. It's not a command. It's as though this is what is happening now. He says, you answered me. All of a sudden, Jesus gets it. He already got it. But his faith was in such a place at that point where he knew the rescue that was to come was not about him being saved from the cross or death. The rescue that was to come was not about being saved from the sword or from the horns and the bulls, those who ravaged him with mockery and with words and lies. That was not what he was being saved from. That's what he was dying because of in order to save us from it. But he knew that God had answered him. And, and this whole passage, beginning at the verse, verse 1 all the way through most of verse 21, is lament. It's crying out to God. It's pleading his case to God. But the last part of verse 21, it switches and it never goes back again. And I'm, I'm excited to see what we have next week and the week after and what we see in the response as an overflow from the praise and worship of God and the glory of God, even in Christ's suffering. He says, you answered me. You see, Jesus has kept his eyes on the Father. He has kept his eyes on the prize that he needed to keep his eyes on. And although he was waning and weakening and dying and crying out for rescue, he knew that the ultimate rescue was, was taking place by God through Christ in death and in resurrection. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for application for us today? First off, we shouldn't steer away from viewing the suffering of Christ. Because he suffered where you and I actually deserved to suffer. And it puts, us, puts things in perspective for us, doesn't it? That God, through Christ, went to that extent to redeem to save us. But it goes further than that. For some today, either you're here in person or you're listening online. For some today, you're still in that, that, that second camp, that, that camp that isn't in God's sight. It's like those people he was talking to in John 8. It's like, you're of your father, the devil. He's murderers. He's a murderer from the beginning and he's full of lies. He's the father of lies. And, and every intent of your heart, every intent of who you've been, 
who you've been has been against Jesus. Well, today is a day I hope you see the suffering of Christ that was done for you. Don't be against him. He was totally for you. Here's the problem, and Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. The word of the cross, the message of the cross, the story of Christ's suffering is foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who would not believe. But it is. The the story of the cross, the word of the cross, the story of Christ's suffering is the power of God to those who are being saved. You see, there's power. The power of God was displayed in might, in wrath, and put on the Lord Jesus for us. And we can accept that payment for our own sin, or we can die in our sin and have God's wrath on us instead. I hope the word of the cross, the message of the cross, is not foolishness, but it's power. You see it in its glory. You see it in its splendor. You see it in its brutality for what it is, but it's a substitute for you. That Jesus died in your place to bring you to God. So what, what now? What do we do? In the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, what, what is now the application? Okay, we have faith now. We trust entrust ourselves to God and what He's done on the cross. This life isn't over. We still have pains and sorrows and grief. What do we do? Well, we learn from the Lord Jesus. We get those yet yous out to God. We pray more deeply and not just objectively like, yeah, you're holy, but no, you are my God. You are close. Please be near. Rescue me. Save me. You've answered me. We get close that way. And the author of Hebrews, I think, writes it really well in, in Hebrews 12, 1-3. through 3. We'll finish with this passage. It says, Therefore, since we have this great large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, he's talking about Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, and you could say he's talking about the gospel, the cross of the Lord Jesus. There's an example set by Christ on the cross. We have this large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Then let us lay aside uh, every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Run with endurance. How do we do that? Well, we we set aside those things that hinder our race. Maybe it's a reprioritizing of your schedule. Maybe it's, it's, listen, right now is a really difficult time in the the midst of our world. There is less community happening now, in churches especially, than has been in many years. My hope is it's not true for you. My hope is you're running to community. You're trying to find community. For a lot of us, it was, a, it was a tough time the first three months of this, right? We were like, shelter in place, don't talk to anybody, don't see anybody, don't, just stay away. How do you have community? How do you develop community with others when you can't do that? It's tough. So the hindrance right, right now might be that you aren't around people, that you aren't around folks that you need to be around. I mentioned earlier during my announcement time, kind of in passing, but I, it's so important for us to gather And if you're willing, come gather on Sunday mornings. Be a part of what's going on here personally. It's rich. It's important. And it's a hindrance if we don't. At the least, be in your homes with other people. Invite others to be a part of that and be in community. Go to the discussion questions. Go to the Word. Lay aside the things that are hindrances in your life, the priorities that you have been prioritizing poorly, reprioritize them. And the sin that so easily ensnares. We cannot continue living our lives of sin and selfishness if we want to follow Jesus. We've got to throw that aside and say, you know what, I want Jesus alone. There's nothing better, nothing sweeter than Him. I'm going to follow Him. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. And it goes on, it says this, keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keeping our eyes on Him. Keeping our eyes on the suffering Savior who suffered in the way He did. And we, we see it spelled out in Scripture and certainly here in Psalm 22. Keep our eyes on Him through the middle of suffering. Kept His eyes on the Father. Kept His faith in the Father. Grew His faith in the Father. For He is the pioneer and perfecter, or the author and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy that lay before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Jesus didn't give up. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't give up? 
Amen? Right? We're so glad Jesus didn't give up. Ah, you know what? I don't want to do this whole cross thing. I've read about it in Psalm 22. It looks pretty painful. I'm not. No, he's, you know what? He endured the cross. Now we have an example that we can look to. So when we suffer, we won't grow weary and give up. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we're so thankful for your grace and for your mercy. We're so thankful for the word of God. And, and Father, as, we, as we've gone through this text uh, in the last few weeks, and we'll continue that in the next couple, God, I, I just pray that you would continue to let us see this beautiful, vibrant picture of the Lord Jesus, of what he's endured for me and what he's endured for you. God, I, I thank you so much that you provided this redemption. You provided this, this forgiveness because Jesus took the penalty that I deserved. And God, through faith in Christ, we can have forgiveness and a righteousness that we could never achieve on our own. God, for those who are, are here today or tuning in today that, that are in, in a place of, of ridicule and scoffing, and they're the ones who are maybe the bulls that encircled Jesus, devouring them with their disdain, God, I pray that you would humble their hearts, that you would let them see the cross more clearly for what it is, that their sin, that our sin put Jesus there and he died so we could be set free from it. God, help those who must turn from themselves and their pride to do that, to soften their hearts and turn in faith to Christ Jesus. And God, for those who have, I pray that you would help us to continue to endure in this life. It is a difficult road, but God, you've given us each other. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word. So Father, help us to to stand firm. And God, to throw off the things that hinder us from those things, throw off the sin that ensnares us and distracts us, and that we would consider the Lord Jesus, we'd look to his example, and we would not grow weary and give up. We thank you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.